Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to our um, adult Sunday school class, and uh, we want to go ahead and get started. And people will come in as they come in, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Holy Father, we are so thankful to you for your amazing grace, your faithfulness to us, and how it's uh, given to us every day. Uh, your mercies are new every morning, and I just am so thankful that your kindness is is um, is everlasting, and that you have drawn us um, by your presence and by your spirit into a relationship with you, and that we can um, have the opportunity to get to know you and to to learn about you. Thank you for your word and and what it means to us and and how it teaches us. And as we look at it this morning and and discover things, may our eyes be opened and, and hearts moved um, in ways that maybe are new to us and and maybe be instructed by your spirit uh, so that we can be changed and every day uh, in, undergo new changes before you. So we need your presence, we need your power for this. So we ask for it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to see you uh, this morning. Um, I hope you all had a good week and uh, ready for a new one that's coming up before us. We're going to be finishing this quarter of uh, lessons today. And so uh, as we uh, finish up, it'll be finishing this section called God's Justice and Mercy. Our uh, memory verse uh, for this time is Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this uh, Isaiah writing about the, 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 the redemption of mankind and, and how man has gone his way, but God in his mercy has reached out to us, and we're very thankful for that. We have uh, we started this um, quarter with uh, the nation of Israel being divided into two kingdoms um, after the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam, and, and became the king, and then it was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So we've gone through um, talking about how how that happened and then the the ramifications of it and the falling away of um, uh, various kings, all the kings from the north, um, much of the kings from the south, uh, leading uh, the people astray into idolatry. We, we've talked about the prophets that God sent uh, to bring instruction and warning uh, to the nation. And... Uh, and then we've seen the judgment of God. And we've talked about how God judged the northern kingdom. And, and then last week, how God uh, brought judgment upon this, the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah. And uh, so we have now worked our way to the place where both of these uh, nations, these kingdoms, have been dispersed. Uh, they were invaded, uh, destroyed, and dispersed. Pe- that many of the people's... Uh, were dispersed into other nations. That was God's judgment upon them for <coughs> for their idolatry. And so this le- lesson is lesson twelve. We're dealing with the seventy years of exile, uh, and so we'll be looking at that. And so we're doing a little review. Um, as I said, Israel has been scattered. Uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, has been invaded. The walled cities destroyed. And Jerusalem, along with the temple, is just left as rubble. Just completely leveled, wiped out, and just piles of stones everywhere. That's what's left there. Most of the survivors have been taken to Babylon uh, in three separate deportations with a small remnant left uh, in the Judean area to uh, tend to the fields. And they were left with a governor. Uh, his name was Gedaliah. And he's supposed to kind of oversee underneath 
uh, the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So that's where we left things last week. What is the reason for the judgment? Um, Exodus 24 to 6. What's in Exodus 20, the great thing? Ten commandments, right? And uh, so the second of those commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God doesn't share. He is God. He knows who he is, and he knows how silly it is for man to take a stone or a piece of wood, carve it up into something, and then bow down to it. Um, but that is that is the problem. That's the reason for the judgment, um, that man has stubbornly um, gone into that. And, and it's interesting that, that, um, that man has inside of him this proclivity. It goes clear back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? In that first failure is to, to find another way, to find another way. God being the creator and being so generous to us, and yet uh, because of, of, of the fall, we have this thing inside of us that wants to find another way and create all kinds of ways, some of them pretty horrible, as we've talked about in, in the worship of idolatry that involves sometimes human sacrifice and other things that, that degrade humanity. And yet, those things are preferred above the God who wants to set us free and who wants to give us uh, p- power in Him. And, and, and it's, it's an amazing um, blindness that human beings can have and, and a stubbornness that human beings have. I found this comic in, in the newspaper this week. I was kind of stunned when I read it because it fits so well. Um, people were given a vast universe to teach them humility and they invented astrology to make it all about them. <laughs> and, and isn't that kind of how our, our human race has been? Uh, we have um, fi- worked and worked to find other ways um, and, and ignored what God has demonstrated to us and what God has shown us. And, um, but that is the issue. The issue is a, is a battle of wills, isn't it? It's God's will or it's my will. And we um, have told ourselves as human beings that to, to subject our will to God's will is bondage. And so we fight and fight for our way, our will, not realizing that that is the bondage. That subjecting ourselves to the will of God is the freedom. That's where the freedom is. That's where real life is. But no, we, we lie to ourselves and ignore everything that God has, has shown us. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? What he has created is shouting to us every day. But in, in many ways, we run through life with our hands, you know, on the sides of our eyes and uh, not wanting to see what God is revealing. And so God is, is uh, finally at a, pl- a place where judgment has to happen. It reminded me, as I saw this comic, of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, where he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so then what does God do? He turns them over, it says. Turns them over to their desires. And probably when you really think about it, the most terrifying judgment that can come upon us is for God to let us go and let us go after what we want, to turn us over to our desires. 
Because what does that bring? It brings ultimate destruction. That is destruction when we actually go after our uh, sinful desires. We talked about last week how in spite of that, God's plans are not dependent upon the successful execution of men. Uh, God doesn't need us to successfully implement his plans in order for his plans to succeed. Uh, we talked about how that, that uh, God, uh, not needing us, he invites us to, to share with him in his plans. And so he's inviting us to join him, but his plans aren't threatened by man's failures. He continues to go on, continues to find a way, and he continues to accomplish his purposes. And one, that the big plan that concerns us is that, that what we t- talked about, the scarlet thread of redemption going back to Genesis 3, um, and it flows all the way to the cross. It goes through human history with lots of failure of men, uh, of key people. Lots of failures, and yet God still accomplishes that purpose. God doesn't fail. And so because of that, we now, 2,000 years later, can look back and see the accomplishment of that, and we can rejoice in that fact. And we can also rejoice in the fact that God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes either. He invites us to join him in what he's doing, but he's still, with his promises for the future, going to accomplish them uh, with or without our uh, abilities and our um, own steadfastness and, and faithfulness, God is sovereign and he does accomplish his, his uh, plans. We talked about last week, God brings judgment not because we spoil his plans. God doesn't you know, get mad at us and bring judgment because we've wrecked his plans. Um, no, he brings judgment because he loves the creature that he has made in his own image and is rescuing those that are his. See, his judgment is an intervention in order to rescue his plan and in order to accomplish his purpose. So he brings the judgment. Um, the, the big, huge example of that is the flood. Man was in a completely self-destructive mode and probably would have been extinct within another one or two generations because of, of what's described there is the violence that's filled the land and God knows it's there and, um, and so God intervenes. He saves a family and he continues his plan um, for, for redemption of mankind but he knows who's his and he's going to rescue them. God gives time for repentance as uh, Peter talks about in his second letter. And so he delays judgment because he's executing his plan. Um, But it's always according to his plan. And what does Peter say? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires uh, to bring those that are his into repentance and into faith. And so God is always working, and we can always trust in what he's doing. Now, living in exile, we have... um, all of these Jewish people that have been deported into Babylon, living in exile, and there is there are things that they would need to know and things that, that are revealed to them. First of all, Jeremiah chapter 25, if you would turn there, Jeremiah 25. We'll be spending most of our time in Jeremiah this morning. Verse 11 says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, Jeremiah wrote this during the time of Jehoiakim, the king. This is before all of the destruction, around the time of the first deportation. Nebuchadnezzar had just defeated the king of Egypt, He'd come back up to Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. Come back up to Jerusalem and uh, uh, got news that his father had died 
and so needed to go back to Babylon to, for the official coronation of himself being the king, but took with him that first deportation. And uh, as we said, Daniel was in that group of people. And so Nebuchadnezzar is already taking control, but Jerusalem still had uh, quite a bit of time left, uh, around 16 years, something like 16, yeah, 16 years, I think. And so <coughs> before it was completely destroyed. But Jeremiah is writing about how long this, this deportation is, or this uh, exile is going to be. It's going to be 70 years. And it's from that time, that first deportation, that uh, it would take place. Second Chronicles 36.21, I think I have it up here. Uh, Ezra, writing this, um, writes that it's to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now remember, Ezra is after. He's after the 70 years are over. And he's writing um, the Chronicles, giving a history of the nation. But he's writing about this, that it was uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So the, uh, if you remember in the law of, of, that Moses gave, um, every seventh year, was to be observed as a Sabbath. And so that meant that during their year, that year, there'd be no working in the fields, no uh, uh, gathering of the crops and so on. That the sixth year was to be a, such an abundance that it would last them through the seventh year and uh, until the harvest of, of the first year of the next seven. And so there would be two years worth of harvest in that sixth year that would sustain them through to the to the next harvest and they were to leave the land fallow for that time and uh, that was God's way of, of keeping the land healthy and so on uh, but they were to observe those Sabbaths well as we know human nature is what it is right and so uh, they they did real well at the beginning but um, if you do the math um, the that equals 490 years where those Sabbaths had not been observed. And that goes all the way back to the time of Eli, the priest. If you remember who Eli is, Eli was the priest that brought little Samuel into, his, um, into the temple and, and trained him up in the priesthood. And uh, that goes clear back before King Saul, um, years before King Saul. So, all of those years, it seems, those, year, those uh, seven-year Sabbaths were not observed. And so God chose to, uh, to mark those Sabbaths with this uh, particular exile of the nation. And just kind of as, as an aside, this is not the only thing that got neglected. Uh, we've talked about before, but um, when King Hezekiah came king, he uh, reinstituted the Passover that, not had, that had not been celebrated fully um, uh, with the nation uh, for, for many, many years. In fact, back to the days of Samuel. Hezekiah did it um, partly, but he even wasn't able to completely do it. And it seemed that it was only a one-time thing where the Passover was supposed to be yearly. If you remember uh, uh, Moses' instructions, they were to, to observe Passover yearly to remind them of from whence they had come. But it got lost. Um, and then uh, after Hezekiah, we had some bad kings, and, and, and again, things got lost. Then Josiah, the, the greatest of the reformers, um, came in, and after having heard the law read to him, one of his responses was to, to do a Passover. And uh, one of the things that when Hezekiah did his, they had a late start. So they couldn't do it on the right month. They had to do it at the following month because not all the priests had been cleansed and weren't prepared. And so they got a special grace from God. They actually had uh, prayers to God asking that, that, uh, that 
the people would not be um, destroyed because of, of uh, not doing it on the prescribed date. And God granted them that. Uh, in Josiah's time, they did it right. They invited everybody throughout the whole kingdom and even into the northern kingdom that had already been destroyed uh, by the Assyrians. There were still some remnant of Jewish people living up there. So Josiah um, invited them all, and, and many of them came. So this huge group of people in Jerusalem observing the Passover as had been prescribed. But even uh, with that, it, um, he says that uh, there was no Passover like it since the days of Samuel. So going all the way back before David. Passover had not been observed as it was supposed to be for all that time. So one of the things that tells us is how easy it is for us as human beings to let things go uh, or to, to um, make, a, make something out of um, our prescribed worship that it's not to be. And so was this an issue with God? Yeah, God took, made an issue of it, but that wasn't the, re- the primary reason for judgment that came. The primary reason was idolatry. That was the big deal. Um, these other things were, were meant to remind them who they truly worshipped and to whom they truly owed their gratitude for what they had. They were to remember that God was their provider, that God was the one that had uh, made the way for them to be a nation. Those were items that were to remind them of that. But if you remember during the, uh, the uh, first century, the time of Christ, uh, the Jewish people in Israel were very uh, adamant about their remembrances of the Sabbath and of Passover. They kept them all, right? And, and they were very religious about it. And what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70? It was leveled again. It wasn't the actions that made the difference, um, but it's just like us today. Um, if, if our hearts are not with God, the actions don't matter, do they? God wants our heart. That's what matters to God. And God, that's what God wants to see in us. So anyway, that's uh, part of what is going on at this time. Now, they had instructions for exile. And the first one we'll see in Jeremiah chapter 29. So let's turn over there. Chapter 29, verse 4. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and seek if a male can give birth. I'm in chapter 30, I'm sorry. I knew this didn't sound right. (laughs) Try again. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. So they were to put down roots. They were not to go into exile and think that in just a couple of years, we're going to be going back. No, there's going to be a generation that goes by. Uh, you need to have children. You need to multiply. And because when you do come back, I want there to be many people coming back to repopulate Israel. And so... Uh, those were the instructions um, that they were to put down roots. Uh, then there were more. They were to ignore the false prophets. Let's look in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets 
who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name I have not sent them declares the Lord now there were false prophets who were telling them that in two or three years they would be returning that this was a temporary thing and so there were false prophets in Babylon that had gone with the, uh, the deportation. There were also false prophets back in Jerusalem, and they had a coordinated message. And so uh, Jeremiah is saying, nope, that's not it. That's not God's plan. God's plan is 70 years. It's going to be 70 years. You need to plan on that. It will be 70 years. Then down in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where I have sent you into exile. And so God uh, clarifies and, and makes, makes it very obvious that this is going to be a long-term thing. It's a need to, uh, to plant their roots down at least for 70 years. And uh, they need to seek the good of the, of the cities in which they live. Um, they need to be good citizens and, and, and so on, uh, because that is good for their own welfare. So those are the instructions for the exiles, that, that how they were to live and what they were to expect um, from those around them. But God gives them this hope that he is still their protector. He's still their provider. He's still looking out for them and that he will bring them back. He says, uh, my plans are for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope, right? That, that God is giving them that, that uh, encouragement that even though I uh, made you go into exile and, and later they will see the, their city, their home city destroyed, their, everything that they knew, completely leveled turned into rubble god is is reassuring them that he's caring for them and that he will take care of them and that there is a future for them um, and so that they need to trust in him and so one of the things that we do observe and i think is important for us to remember is that in those deportations that there not everyone was an idolater there were true believers as well. We know that Daniel was and his three friends, right? And, and we know that there had to have been others too because they gathered together to, on Sabbath to worship and, and to remember um, who they were and what they were about. And so uh, there were other godly people, people who had reverence for God and, and who kept that. They, and they kept those observances um, of of their faith in God. And so uh, those people were, were here in exile. Um, they, they had to bear the, the ramifications of the idolatry as well, right? But God took care of them through that. And sometimes that's how it is with God's people. That God's people will uh, reap the harvest of, of the uh, destructive behavior of the culture in which they live because they live in that culture. Even though they may not participate in it, they still will reap the harvest of it to an extent. But God, for Israel here, is telling them, even though you are reaping that harvest, I am protecting you and I have plans for you. So don't lose heart. Stay faithful. And so this is a really good message for these people in exile. Now, something I sh am supposed to address on this is context. And I'm sure as we read one of those verses, that this, there's a particular verse that just kind of pops out because it's become very popular to be used um, in a certain way. 
But we need to remember, and we've talked about this from the beginning, context, context, context. It's really, really important to our understanding of God's word. For some people, unfortunately, it's context, schmontext. Um, you know, we just take what we want and, and uh, put it on a plaque and hang it on our wall, right? And, uh, and, uh, and, that, and that's what we do. We, we disregard the context. Um, I think it would be really cool to have verse 17 be a plaque on the wall where it says, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm sending upon them the sword and famine and pestilence, and I'll make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. That would be a good plaque, wouldn't it? That would, that would uh, inspire us all with hope and so on. That is actually the statement about those who are still in Jerusalem. God is saying, I'm still... I have plans for them, all right, and guess what those plans are. <laughs> and so um, we need to read the context. What is the context of verse 11? The context is that it's a promise to those people in exile and that God has plans for them. And uh, when I was a kid in, in Sunday school, we had this little song that we sang, that every promise in the book is mine, every passage, every verse, every line. All the blessings of the love of his love divine, every promise in the book is mine. Well, not really. <laughs> That's not really true. Um, they got, there's lots of promises. Some of them are to me, um, but some of them are to Israel. Some of them were to Abraham. Some were to David. There are promises that have specific meaning and for, are, have a specific context, and we should understand them within their context. One of the things that's really important for us is to respect the context. And I believe that if we don't respect the context, we're not respecting God's word. It is important. It matters. We need to respect God's word by respecting the context. And if we need words of hope, God has given to us words of hope. All you got to do is read Romans chapter 8. There's amazing words of hope there for us as believers. Uh, verse 15 to 16, we're called children of God that were adopted and made heirs uh, in, in chapter 8. Verse 26 to 27 talks about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. And that uh, even when we don't know how to pray, we don't even know what words we, we uh, should be using, that the Holy Spirit prays for us. The Holy Spirit is, is with us and prays for us in verse 28 all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose um, what an amazing promise that is verse 29 that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that's huge why would god do that you know god is so amazing to give us that promise verse 31 god is for us if god is for us who can be against us he says Verse 32, God is the one who justifies. And God being the highest one, the highest being that there is, if God is the one who justifies us, then who can make a charge against us? Is what Paul is writing there. There's no one can make a charge against us because God being the highest authority justifies us, declares us not guilty. That's a great promise. Uh, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of God? And he gives a whole list of things and, and says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those are amazing promises and things that we should be grabbing onto. The, uh, there are a lot of uh, precious promises that for us as, as Christians, as people of the church, we, we can grab onto and hold onto, and they are faithfully within the context that they were intended to be. And so that's where we should be going. And, uh, and it is a great thing to put something like that on, on your wall to, re to remind us of, of, of what it is that God has given to us. But let's not be taking things out of context. Uh, there is another one. It's been um, kind of a pet peeve of mine for a long time. And, and it fits really well within the, this lesson. So there is a context that's really cool. Psalm 126, if you'd turn with me there. Psalm 126 
is the psalm of ascents. It means ascending up, you know, ascents. Um, and this psalm is, is written after the exiles have returned from Babylon. And you can readily see it. It's, it's very plain within um, its writing. Psalm 126, it's only six verses. It says this, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, bearing his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Jeremiah gave instructions to the exiles that they were to put down roots, right? Plant your gardens, raise your crops, have children, bring um, new uh, descendants into into the world to bring back with you uh, when the restoration takes place. And so that's what this psalm is about, is about them coming back into the land and being able to be blessed with it. They went forth into the land weeping, right? It was a sorrowful thing to go into exile. But when they came back, they came with rejoicing, bringing with them the blessings that God had given them while they were in exile, bringing those blessings with them. That is the primary interpretation of Psalm 126. And it's an amazing fulfillment of the instructions um, that, that Jeremiah had given to the people. Trust in the Lord and he will bless you. And, and that is the teaching we should receive from it. Now, when I was a kid growing up in church, we had a, a hymn. And hymn writers can be uh, uh, famous for, for picking and choosing their, um, their uh, words that they use for songs. But there was a song uh, called Bringing in the Sheaves. And uh, we would sing this song um, at a rip-roaring pace, you know. And, and, uh, and it was really about this. Um, but the application had to do with evangelism or what we called soul winning you know um but it was to be uh to go out there and and you sow the seed of god's word and and uh it it will bring forth a harvest eventually and and so on well those concepts are in the new testament right but that's not what this psalm is about and this psalm has nothing to do with soul winning it has to do with restoration from exile and to to borrow out of context things like this, I think, um, does disservice to us because it cheapens our view of interpretation. And I think it's important for us to, uh, to really show our value to God's word by rightly interpreting, rightly dividing the word of truth, to, to rightly interpret God's word and respect the context and keep it within its context. So it has been said that there is one, interpreta one interpretation but many applications. I would submit to you there's one interpretation and occasionally there's more than one application. But generally, the, the primary interpretation also gives you the application and that is how we should see it. We need to be um, reverent with God's word and, um, and not careless or inventive. Uh, with the, our interpretations. Uh, it's probably enough said by me on that topic, uh, for now anyway. Um, all right, then uh, we go back to Jeremiah chapter 25, and what we're going to see is that um, Judah is not the only nation that are in God's crosshairs. And let's look at, start in reading in verse 29. 
For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, that's Jerusalem, which is called by my name. And shall you be completely free from punishment? He's talking to the other nations now, the surrounding nations. You will not be free from punishment. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Therefore, you shall prophesy against them all these words, and you shall say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A clamor has come to the end of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, he has given them to the sword declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil is going forth from nation to nation, and a great storm is being stirred up from the remotest parts of the earth. Those slain by the Lord on that day will be from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be lamented, gathered, or buried. They will be like dung on the face of the ground. This is a one of those prophecies that, that Mike has talked about before where there's a near application and a far application. And it, it goes like this. There were surrounding nations uh, of Judah that were also um, invaded by Nebuchadnezzar and taken over and, and, and they were destroyed. In fact, it goes all the way from Tyre, which was a very rich city uh, up in Lebanon area, all the way down Philistia, over to Moab um, and the Ammonites and, and, and the Edomites, all of those areas surrounding and including Egypt as well in the south, all of those areas were taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. The kings were, were executed or taken into captivity and Nebuchadnezzar took control. <coughs> but he didn't completely wipe them out. Tyre, he... he, he uh, did a lot of damage to, but he didn't even completely wipe them out. They weren't completely wiped out until Alexander the Great a few centuries later. Um, but uh, he did take control. There, there is, though, however, this, this future thing that still hasn't happened where not just those nations in the Middle East, but the nations of the world are facing a severe judgment by God. And God, even though he's held... Israel accountable for their idolatry doesn't mean that Israel's the only nation that gets held accountable. And that's the point here. Um, the, the very clear saying is, uh, I am going against or working calamity in the city called by my, na- my name. Shall you escape punishment? If I'm going against Jerusalem, you should be quaking in fear, is the point. And so, that is uh, the coming uh, judgment still yet uh, that, has, that will be fulfilled, that God will bring about. All right. How do we apply this to ourselves? One of the things I think that is important to keep in front of us, that even in judgment, God's faithfulness is demonstrated. We talked about this at the beginning. God, um, even in his judgment, is faithful to his people and to his plan. That, that, re, that plan of redemption has to do with God rescuing people that he co- has claimed for himself. And so God is faithful to accomplish his plan. As weak and fickle at times as we are, God is strong and determined to fulfill his plan. You know, First um, John, this just, just popped in my head, so I wasn't totally prepared for this, but First John 1.9 um, is a great example of this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He doesn't use the words that God is, is compassionate and uh, patient to forgive us our sins. No, his forgiveness is based upon his faithfulness and his justice. That's, that's an amazing thing to think about. 
that, that gives it such great weight that his forgiveness is, is a weighty thing and can be counted upon. We can trust in that. And so, yeah, there are times when we are very weak. That's why we go to God. We go to our Father, and we, we go to His strength in our weakness. We go to His forgiveness and, and seek that restoration, and, and that's where we find then strength for ourselves because He is strong. And so that even in judgment, God's faithfulness is clearly demonstrated, and He gives it to us abundantly. His faithfulness never fails. God never fails in that. We have instructions for our exile. You know, as believers, we're really not citizens of this world anymore, are we? We are um, ambassadors, we're described. Um, We are um, outsiders because we're not part of this world. We're in it. But as Jesus said in John 17 in his prayer, we're not to be of it. We're in, but not of. And so we are, in that sense, living as exiles in this world. And how are we to live? Well, we have instructions for that. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, uh, that we're to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to our own business and work with our hands just as we commanded you. And so that's one of the instructions that we have um, Titus 3, 1 and 2 um, says to remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Also like you to turn over to 1 Peter 1. I didn't put these on the slides because I didn't think I'd have time. <laughs> so we do have time. So I want to look at them because they're really good. First Peter chapter one, verse 17. If you address this father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Look over to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which we wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in this thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And the last one I wanted to point your attention to is in Romans chapter 13. Verses 1 to 7 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they do have And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear bear the sword for nothing. For it, the government, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Those are instructions for New Testament exiles. Those of us who live in our time, um, who are in the world, but not of the world. God has has called us to live in it in a way that brings honor to him 
and, and honor to the authority. So those are our instructions. All right, any questions or comments? Okay, the comment is that, oh, would I agree? Yes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God doesn't change the way he deals with people. Um, in, in the sense that, that he, he, his expectations are for, for his people to, to reverence him. Um, there are certain practices that he changes. We, we no longer practice certain mosaic laws because they weren't a, for us. Um, but uh, there are other things that are completely the same. And God's expectations are is that we walk by faith, that we trust in him. And even when we read the Ten Commandments, we can see, even though those were for Israel, uh, they really apply to us in so many ways. And even the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, is something that as I read it, it speaks to my heart as to my contentment with God. Do I trust him? Do I trust what he has given to me? Or am I going to be always looking for, for what other people have and be discontented with, with how God has provided for me? So yeah, that there is a lot of crossover and there are principles that we can learn from those passages. So for instance, Psalm 126, going back to that, um, that is written to those uh, returning exiles to Jerusalem. That's, they, they wrote that as a song of praise um, to, to God. What we can look at it and see is the hope that they had in trusting in God while they were in exile and coming back is something that we can hold on to as well. God provided for them while they're in exile God provides for us even when we're going through those dark times in our life. And God is saying, I want you to hold on to me. Now, sometimes those dark, those dark times in our life don't end till our life ends. And God doesn't make us a promise that we're going to be restored back to our land. Right? Uh, God, and so we, we have to be careful not to claim that as some kind of promise that um, you know, I just went into foreclosure or bankruptcy with my business. And so, you know, I'm going through this dark time, but God is going to, you know, bring me out of it. Maybe not. We may go through a complete change of life or there'll be some other hardships that will, uh, we will never get out of. But our faith needs to be in the God who provides for us and that he will take us through it one way or the other. But the, um, that is what our hope is in. And, but I would encourage us to, to be careful how we apply those verses. So uh, the words of Jeremiah to, to the exiles, that God is not planning calamity for you, but a hope, um, that was for them. Uh, God doesn't necessarily promise that for us. Um, in fact, Jesus said, you will undergo persecution. Uh, there will be hard things for you. And as we know, um, the, the apostles um, had very difficult lives, right? Um, and many of, of the early Christians um, did. There are, are Christians today in different parts of the world that have very difficult lives. And for them to, to try to claim a verse like that as a, as a hope promise, um, w would be inappropriate. It's bad interpretation. Um, but our hope is in Romans 8 and in other passages like that because what we look for is not a city on this world, but a city made by God. And that's what we're trusting in, and that's what we're moving forward to. That's a great comment to bring up. Anyone else?
Right. Uh, what he, Brian is bringing up is why is it that there are Christians who talk about this idea that when you become a Christian, you don't suffer anymore? And, um, you know, that seems like that would be, if I were putting together an evangelistic plan, that would be the plan I would put together. That's a whole lot more appealing. And I think you, you get a, a lot more to it. That's not the plan God put together. And, uh, and I think we can understand why. Uh, because God is working on our character. And he's more concerned about our character than our comfort. You probably heard that before. But um, God is, is continually working on our character. But he's also using those trials, those hard things, to be a light to the world, right? And so... Um, when they see us go through it, through our, our suffering, and we still walk by faith, that's, that's a testimony of good to the world about how real our faith is. Um, and so suffering is an important part of, of the Christian life that God uses um, in his wisdom as he chooses to do it. But, but yeah, there's a whole lot of of what's underneath the Christian umbrella that preaches that message, that there there should be no more suffering. When you become, when you follow Jesus, your life gets better. Um, yeah, uh, I have I have a friend who, when he became a Christian, um, he injured his back at work and uh, lost his job. And <laughs> his life just. It, it went bad for a long time, you know, and he would say to me, you know, why, 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 you know, but God had to take him through things, um, and it was for his good, and we go to Romans eight twenty eight, right? All things work together for good, so. So, any other comments or questions? Okay, one more. Right, Jeremiah twenty twenty nine eleven. We can look at it and say, God was faithful to them. He was trustworthy there, and so I can trust Him for what He has promised me. That's how we should see it. Um, we see example after example throughout the the Old Testament. You know, specific promises made, um, and we can look at them, and it actually should build our faith. So that the promises that he has made to us, particularly about our redemption and, and, and our future, uh, what God is making us into, being conformed to the image of his son is one of the most mind-boggling promises, I think, that's in the Bible. Um, to, to accept that, what helps me accept that is knowing that God has faithfully worked through the history of man to keep his promises that he made to them. And because he kept his promises to them, I can trust in this one that he made to me. Does that make sense? Um, so that, I think, is how we should be looking at those promises. There is, um, there can be a, a temptation to kind of spiritualize uh, the promises and that's not totally always bad, but it, it's a little cringeworthy to me. Um, and, and I really try to be careful not to it, maybe because I'm just not smart enough to, to be able to handle it correctly. But um, I think we have to be careful about spiritualizing things and taking them beyond what they were intended to be. Uh, I think we need to be careful with God's word. It was written 
in a, in a really in a plain format to be, uh, to be understood by us, except for some things, you know, like uh, Peter writes about things written by Paul that are hard to understand. And so there are some things that, that, um, that we can read over and over again, and we're still going, wow, what does that mean? You know, Ezekiel is one of those. But, you know, we trust the, the stuff that is plainly written to be written as it was intended to be understood. And so that is how we should be interpreting it. That's why context matters. Context really matters to us. And I think when we respect the context, that's a way of us showing respect for God's word. All right, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, uh, again, for your word. And, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be able to get into it, that we all get a copy of it and we can read it and that your spirit helps us to understand it. And Lord, help us to, to faithfully apply it to our lives, to walk by faith, to trust in you, and to know that your promises are real and that we can trust in them. And help us to even find those ways of rejoicing in what you are doing in our lives so that we may come before you with confidence, knowing that you love us. And we just trust in all that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, and we'll have a good worship today.